As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at bteracing.com. Coming to the Texas Motorplex on its rescheduled date of June 11th through the 14th, CP Promotions brings the Pro One Texas Two-Step 50K presented by J. Allen Sherman Racing Engines and RaceSponsorships.com. There's tons of racing for both box and no-box racers for an incredible value. Stay tuned for more details about the Pro One Texas Two-Step 50K. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss Ross LaRice, Johnny Brackett Racer, and racers from outside of Louisiana as well. Big Jed! We're on the same airwaves for the first time in a while. How are you, sir? Luke, I am well. Uh, again, as I've said in the past, in every sense of the word, uh, things are going really good. And my home state of Alabama is starting to open back up a little bit. I actually got to do some racing this past weekend at Huntsville Dragway. Felt a little weird to smoke the uh, the slicks there in the water box, but uh, got over that quickly and got back to getting my head caved in. So. Uh, kind of getting back to some normalcy around here. So really, really starting to enjoy the open up phase here in, in my state. Could you have ever imagined you would be as excited to get your head caved in? No, you know, you, you kept see, we well, kept seeing all these memes about how I would love to be dragging my 
you know, battery charger to the lanes. And I'd love to be going 001 red if it meant we were racing all that. And I felt the same way, you know, whatever, just get to the racetrack, even if I'm getting beat up on. But uh, that all changed. Uh, I didn't really enjoy that part of it as much as I thought I would. The wind lights were much more enjoyable. There just wasn't enough of them. So I'm over the just to do anything, do anything to wish I was racing stage. Um, I'm ready to just do some winning right now. This, that wasn't fun at all. That wore off pretty quickly, huh? Yeah, it got old quick. Uh, conversely, where I live in Illinois, we're, we're not open. Um, but even here, and, and I feel like um, our our state government has been, I want to say as conservative as any, but from a political standpoint, it's the opposite of conservative. So I get, I don't want to confuse anyone there. Um, it's conservative in the normal sense, but right. not in the political sense. Right, right. So yeah. regardless, uh, Illinois, not open, no, no real racing uh, in the immediate area yet. But even here, uh, which I, I feel like, I don't want to say is universal, because obviously there are still um, some areas um, struggling and, and, and with a great deal of uncertainty, but it feels like for the most part, there is uh, more optimism, a positive outlook. And I believe even here um, that that kind of reigns in the air. So that's a good thing. Um, what's new here personally, uh, as we record this, I actually, this speaks volumes um, for my, my wife and my sister-in-law both, but they actually trusted four boys under the age of 10 to be under my supervision for the last Ooh. 12 hours. Ooh. There was no trips to the emergency room. There was no broken bones. Happy to report everyone survived. Man, that is a, a very good news. And it was very, uh, it was taking a huge chance on their part. So I'm glad it really, well for everyone. They have no idea, but yeah, no, it, uh, <laughs> it, it was, uh, it was fun. We, um, the, the cousins was new. I was Gary and Jack, the, the, the arrangement that I have with my wife, Jessica, is that basically one day a week, I give her a, I say I give her a day off, like she gets to a day of not being the, the, the homemaker, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that day is a, I can say this, I can say two things that sound contradictory. It is my favorite day of the week. And that there is no way that I could do it full time. No way. <laughs> Right. So shouts to my wife specifically and all of the stay at home moms and dads out there, particularly during these times where you're not just mom or dad, you are a school teacher, you are a babysitter, you're check, you check all the boxes. Um, so yeah, uh, it definitely brings a new appreciation for what those folks do. <laughs> no doubt. There's no way I could, uh, I could handle the task myself. So. All right, so today's show, Jed, we basically got three big topics we want to talk about. The first is obvious, and, and we, we scratched the surface a little bit just talking about our perfect our personal lives, is the climate and the atmosphere around sportsman drag racing is obviously changing by the day. I guess that's been the case in some regard for the last two months. You know, I mean, everything has been fluid. It does feel like recently we've gotten more announcements, specifically just within the last week, more definition. I won't go so far as to say certainty, because if the last two months have taught us anything, it's that there's not a lot of certainty in the world. You know, the, 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 the things that maybe we thought were certainties, we've kind of had to reevaluate all of them. 
So I won't, I won't use that term, <laughs> yeah. but definitely feel like there's, there are dates on the calendar, there is definition, there is some clarity going forward, and I think an overwhelming sense of optimism within the sportsman drag racing community. Would you agree? Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, I keep hearing the phrase light at the end of the tunnel, and while that, you know, is just as cliche as it gets, uh, you know, I think the, the uncertainty of where the end was was what was so difficult to deal with for us. Um, if you had told us March the 15th that there will be racing June the 1st, I think the patience meter wouldn't have, would, would not have pegged like it has uh, so far through all this. And, you know, definitely feel like for the first time through all this, Luke, that these June race dates are solid and legit. And personally, how it affects me, you know, having uh, part of the promotion for the, the World Footbreak Challenge July the 4th weekend, you know, that, that uncertainty has been difficult to deal with. But all along, my contact at Bristol has felt really good about them racing in the month of June and us being able to, to get on the racetrack when it's time for us to. And that just gets more and more solid every day to the point where it's not even a concern for me any longer. So I think light at the end of the tunnel is a fitting phrase for where we are right now. And having some visualization of the finish line is is got everybody's optimism very high right now yeah no I, I agree i think it's very reassuring when the story doesn't change or the perspective doesn't get altered for the course of two three four weeks you know what i mean like yeah. that 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 is definitely a shift from where we were a month ago and i think makes us all feel a little bit better about it here so yeah we're gonna go deeper into that um the second part of the podcast just because not that not that NBA basketball and Michael Jordan has anything to do with sports from drag racing, but we're still kind of like on quarantine time and we just need stuff to talk about. And I feel like the whole world watched the last dance documentary and every podcast that I listen to is weighed in with thoughts on it. So I felt I didn't want us to be left out. We're going to talk about the last dance. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Obviously as a basketball fan, a, a, an MJ fan, it was, it was my era, you know, I was a, yes. a mid-teenager when he came in the league and a grown man with a lot of responsibilities when he exited, so I felt like I grew up with him, and, you know, he's about my age, so, yeah, I was I was just stuck to the TV during every episode, and it was, it was amazing to me to get to watch it, so um, I'd love talking about it in any shape, form, or fashion. Agreed. I watched every minute live which is not, I'm, I'm not typically a TV guy, but those two hours on Sunday nights blocked out. So I'm with you. Um, and then we're going to close out. We've been doing some of these fun top five segments. I hope they're fun for you. They're fun for us. Um, today's, we're going to break down our top five um, unsung heroes in terms of at track employees. So we're going to dig through some of our experience, just the, 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 the workers that you don't necessarily think about that you can't help, they, they put a smile on your face every time you see them. I think they're everywhere in the country. We're going to list off our top five. Yes. One production note today, the wheels may come completely off here. Because for the first <laughs> time in years, Jed and I are doing this solo. No producer Mark today. We had a scheduling conflict. So if sound quality sucks, if things don't really mesh together, 
just bear with us because the man that puts all this, makes all this happen and makes us sound and look, I won't say good, as good as we can look, not here today. So we're, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're absolutely flying by the seat of our pants. Going old school, baby. If, if Luke's in one ear and I'm in the other, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just completely old school. We're back. <laughs> good time. I'm excited. <laughs> Shout out to the OGs. Shout out to the OGs. All right. So let's dial it into the, the current news atmosphere around racing. Uh, I feel like, especially if you, if you get on social media, it feels like racing is back. Right. I know that you have been to the racetrack. I have not yet been to the racetrack. Um, Racing is back in some areas. I don't even want to say most areas yet. I I feel like social media skews it to where it feels like everyone is racing. I don't think that's accurate just yet. Um, I don't, and I don't even want to segregate it and say, well, the South is racing because that's not completely accurate either. There's spots around the country. Um, So while I'd say if racing is not back, in your area, it feels like in most areas there are optimism. There's light at the end of the tunnel, as you said. Racing will be back soon. Yeah, I think the most active social media racers are racing, and it's it's making mm. me think that everybody is. But those same people that I see talking about, you know, whether it was a good night or a bad night at the track, they're they're posting regular right now. So it feels like everybody's racing, but we're not quite there yet. And it's just, I mean, the whole thing is obviously bizarre, unprecedented. Used all the words that have been overused for the last two months. Yeah. What's fascinating to me right now is, and we'll obviously focus on racing, but obviously that is a, a microcosm for the entire economy and different facets of it. But what strikes me as incredible is what's, allowed and maybe what's accepted varies so much not only by state but you see within several states by municipality as to what can open what cannot both that end of it i guess well maybe we'll start there but also the specific again to to racing what racing feels like at one facility versus another i see pretty dramatic differences there too um I don't know, which, which side of that do you want to start on? Uh, any, either side, any side. I mean, I, I agree. It's, uh, I think it's different state to state for sure, but um, I'm not sure that there's a very large percentage at all, Luke, that are quote unquote playing by the rules that are perceived to be there anyway. Um, I think, most people are, and and I don't want to be too too blunt or condemn anybody because I want all these tracks racing. But I think most people are understand there's there's part of this that is show, and they are putting on the show uh, through social media and in the public. But once you get to the track, uh, having been to a test and tune and to a, a, an actual race, it was it was absolute business as usual with very little restriction so see i've i've seen feedback 
on the opposite side of that too, because I know, and I don't know the, the, the percentages, you know, I may be talking about one track and you may be talking about the other 90 for all that I know, you know, that are open at this point. But I do know that there have been some instances in which uh, the individual racetracks were adamant about policing social distancing. Like racers said that the races felt significantly different, whether it's someone's parking you and you're know, parking everyone whatever 30 feet apart to uh, every other staging lanes used you were not only not supposed to be away from your car in the staging lanes but that's actually forced there's constant announcements um, reminding and encouraging everyone at the facility not to gather in groups over whatever the number may be five ten people um, uh, i've even heard of um, tracks where i don't know how much they necessarily it. I got the impression that it was either enforced or accepted by a large majority of the um, competitors and, and, and uh, patrons, I guess, of the facility were wearing masks. And then to the flip side of that is just what you said. I see a number of tracks and talked to a number of racers like, yeah, I went racing and it was it felt like going to a race at the end of 2019. Like there was nothing different. So I, I find that amazing. The 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 discrepancy, so to speak, in those stories. So some racers are like, man, racing is back, but man, it, it feels so weird versus, yeah, racing's back and it feels like nothing's changed. Yeah, and I definitely see that point. And I'm sure there's areas where those restrictions are, are being communicated to the to the racers and the people on site on a regular basis. And I can't say that um, that wasn't expected of us racers, but no one was at either facility I've been to over the past week that no one was forcing that on us. But I will say there was a difference in how the racers communicated with one another and how they interacted with one another. Um, I'm a handshaker. I, I talk to pretty much, I feel like everybody at the racetrack when I go, just, you know, thankful for podcasts and, and being in a, you know, an, an announcer's booth here and there where they get familiar with you so typically I have people coming up to me the whole time I'm there shaking hands and and I still had quite a bit of interaction with people but there wasn't any shaking hands there wasn't any hugging you know my my guys that I haven't seen in quite some time so the racers interacted differently for sure and I think that we were just allowed to be big boys and girls and police ourselves for the most part um, it wasn't forced on us where I was anyway. Did that feel awkward in any way? Or was there ever the verbal of like, man, I want to hug you, but I know we're not supposed to. I mean, does, does that even come up? Uh, yeah, it came up quite often. And, you know, I think um, everybody wanted to do that, but just wasn't sure how the other side would take it. So everyone just avoided it. Um, I did personally reach out to shake a hand or two for some people that I felt like was making a move towards me to do something like that and would get a fist bump or an elbow bump or something like that. I, I might've shaken two or three hands the whole time I was there. It was, it was quite odd in that respect. But again, I think we were just allowed to police ourselves for the most part. Sure. No, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what that feels like when we get to racing, because there's gotta be a part of you that just, 
kind of reverts to old habits, even if you're trying to be conscious of that. Like I've always been a handshaker. You know what I mean? Like I, sure. I think something will trigger in your mind now and, and there will be this awkwardness between people, but I, I could see myself shaking several hands without realizing I was doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, you know, it's very weird. Uh, you know, you stand there looking a man in the eye that you know fairly well and you haven't seen in some time and it's, it's natural reaction to shake their hand and, and greet them. Um, and you're, you're looking at them, talking to them, wondering, is he, does he expect me to shake his hand? Is he just not want that at all? You know, I mean, just being totally transparent, it was extremely weird. I want to backtrack a little bit and I realize there's obviously 50 states, what, 47 of them have racetracks. I think we probably have listeners in, in most of them. And we can't touch on all of them because every, the way that this is shaken down, every state has something unique about the way that they're handling this and the way that it's governed. So but let's just speak to what we're most familiar with because I think that if you compare and contrast Alabama and Illinois, and let's be serious here, like we live, what, 300 miles from one another? Yeah, about that. Right. It's not as dramatic. People think Chicago to Montgomery. We're, we're not that, right? So, <laughs> not even and, and, but I don't think you could get two more states with much more polarity at this point. So that's why, and, and obviously we can speak to them. But the way that Alabama's handled this to this point, and maybe this is, all of this will be um, old news, so to speak, almost the moment that you hear it, because again, the situation seems so fluid. But to this point, I've handled the situation significantly differently. Let's talk Alabama first, because I feel like it's been a pretty rapid um, change or opening, just from a racing standpoint. And you can correct me if this, if I'm off base on this, but my perception of this was um, Huntsville was was originally scheduled to have like radial fest or something along those lines the first weekend of May. And it was a couple of the street outlaw guys were going to be there. It's obviously a big spectator event. And as of like the week leading up to that, they were promoting that fairly convinced that it was going to happen and awaiting the, the governor's announcement. Well, the governor's announcement comes that says, yes, we are opening Alabama on, I think it was May 1st, but uh, we're not condoning any gatherings outside of work of more than 10 people. And obviously you're counting on thousands being here to, there to make that event work. So that event gets postponed. And at that point, I was not bullish on the race that happened last weekend, but they went forward again saying, okay, well, the governor is going to make another announcement again the week of, which was last week now, the week leading up to uh, this bracket race this past weekend. And, but the optimism was there, like we're actually going to get to do that. And the governor essentially lifted those sanctions. You and I chuckled a little bit back and forth on it via text because now, yes, you could have gatherings of more than 10 people, which that checks the box. But if you read further down the same release, enter, quote unquote, entertainment venues were still not uh, permitted to open. And they, they gave some examples, bowling alleys, movie theaters, dance clubs, things like that, right? And so exactly. I, I read it as, okay, well, you, you can make the argument, hey, we can have this gathering of whatever, probably 500 people to have that record race, maybe more, more than that probably. And on the flip side, you could say, that's, how is that not an entertainment venue, right? Obviously they did it and the race went off and it all went off without a hitch. And there are several races going off within Alabama. I just, I find it interesting that 
to some extent, like that's almost had to be considered a gray area and yet there's, there's no pushback on it. Right. Yeah, there was uh, no pushback and, and the entertainment venue is, was a little bit subjective, obviously, because um, we're entertaining ourselves on the racetrack. So it's easy to say that, yeah, racetrack is an entertainment venue, but I think in, in the context it was written that it was just meant for you can't entertain groups of fans so and they Huntsville, did close that event to spectators correct Huntsville immediately posted there will be absolutely no spectators allowed uh, as the word is written but you know you if you had a a family member there you could yeah, how call did, yourself how you some kind of crew differentiate or, between can you sell 2,000 exactly. tickets is that okay so, you know, right? yeah so the 11 people that were going to come just to watch they got turned away and everybody else got to come in and have a good time so <laughs> um it was you know it, it was proactive on Huntsville's part to to dive into the gray area of what an entertainment venue is and what it's offering and figure out how to find a way to get open for the racers now um, there was quite a bit of incentive there, Luke, with a, a 300 car max field that you were allowing and it's completely sold out. So the calculator works well when you're promoting and you, you've got it figured out that if I can get my 300, you know, this is what I'm going to leave there with. So they were uh, ultra motivated to find the loophole and figure out how to get open. And they did just that. And they did it with the help of their local uh, government and state representatives. So kudos to them. and you know, again, they, they made their social media posts on how we should handle things as um, participants, but it wasn't enforced upon us or wasn't forced upon us um, very much. So, um, you know, I, again, I'm not trying to tear them down in any shape, form or fashion, but I think that, I think the problem was way bigger than the ability to to solve it so they just kind of put it out there what they wanted of us and let us decide how we do it the the point that you touched on there that i do want to key on because i think my interpretation is that this is pretty universal is that on the from a cursory standpoint it looks like all of these decisions are being made state to state in reality i think probably for most industries but it, it seems to be very apparent for racing that this is more about working with and getting the know, permission is the right word from the local municipalities, right? That seems to be the key, like almost regardless of what the state government says, like they can police everything. If you've got the blessing from your local municipality and have a good working relationship, it seems like you can make things happen to that point. I'll, I'll kind of, shift over to to illinois because on a on from a broad standpoint um we're very much shut down right and and we're still in i think we're technically in phase two but uh, through the end of may and if you look at our governor's plan the layout basically anything wherever you would pigeonhole racing as as a business as a uh, gathering as an entertainment venue, however you want to put it, it's down in phase five, which is if you read the fine print, like it's essentially like we get to phase five when we have a vaccine. Like as of two weeks ago, I said, I don't have much hope for racing in the state of Illinois in 2020. 
anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. um, but again, to that point, I, I feel like as other states open, there's more political pressure on the states that haven't, whatever. Like that's a bigger picture issue. But just focusing on individual racetracks and working with their municipalities, there are at least one, maybe a couple of tracks in Illinois, which I feel like is, is as strict as any state has been, that are operating. Now, they're not operating at full capacity. They're not business as usual by any means, but they're open. And I never would have thought that would have happened three weeks ago. Um, I know that uh, at, at Gateway, Chris Blair has really been pushing and um, they have gotten to the point that they can have private test days and they're, they're selling them in advance. Like I say, it, it's not a race by, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's something. And it feels as though there is some momentum toward like, hey, maybe uh, we get to race sooner than we might have initially thought. Um, so like I say, from that standpoint, it feels like we're trending in the right direction, but it's still a significant difference to what's happening you know, we're 300 miles apart, but even states in between. And, and I see the municipality thing happening in, in, in Tennessee and Kentucky, where there are some tracks that are open and seem to be operating essentially business as usual. And there are some tracks that are, have not gotten the green light to open the gates yet. So I just, I find all of that kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's odd how uh, the eastern half of Kentucky is operating, you know, somewhat business as usual, but the side that gets closer to the area that you live in and mm -hmm. the area that, that the atmosphere that you just described, it seems like they're uh, having to follow suit with, with that, those same guidelines. So it's, it is odd how Kentucky is working, but uh, Tennessee, you know, that, that state's open and going, Georgia, Alabama, of course, uh, I think Mississippi is starting to get there as well. And um, you would, think that the states, even Illinois, is as is, is grim as that situation has looked recently, Luke, you know, I would feel like it's just a matter of time before they see so much pressure that they just, you know, let go of some of this hold that they have on everything. It certainly seems to be trending that way today, at least I would agree with you. And as I try to, to, to process this, because... <laughs> And just digest all of this, like it's, it's so fluid. And I think regardless of what you believe or what you want to believe, it's so easy to find confirmation of whatever your bias is, right? There's so much information and, and some would argue disinformation out there that whatever you want to believe, you can find something that sounds really logical, that sounds really smart and be like, yeah, that, that just, that's exactly what I was thinking, right? <laughs> And I guess my point is, I feel like we all individually come at this from our own unique perspective, right? In, in, in the eyes of others, like to the right person, I think every single one of us is a walking contradiction, right? Because people would look at us and go, why, why do you think it's okay to do this, but not this? I think you would look at every person, you could find someone that says, well, that's crazy, right? And it just speaks to the idea that we're making our own personal decisions, whether it's you personally, me personally, a track operator, a business owner, whatever, we're making our own decisions based on incomplete information, again, maybe disinformation, that is clouded by our own bias, by our own life experience, maybe by our own geography, by the circle of you know, friends or, or, or business partners, whatever, the people that we run with. 
And I think that we're all doing the best that we can with the information that we have. And when I try to think about it from that light, like I just personally, I really try to refrain from passing judgment because obviously you know, I've got a view, which my view is probably more fluid than most. I feel like I bounce around a lot, <laughs> you know, like I, 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 I view myself as being open-minded at times. I feel like I'm just indecisive, but regardless. Um, so if you're, if you're comfortable going racing and it feels like most racers are again, maybe that's, maybe I'm seeing the people that are racing right via social media, but if you're comfortable going racing and, and maybe if you say like, Hey, because I hear a lot of this, not just in racing circles, there's no way it's either, okay, this, this, this virus was way overblown. Right. And, and we made a bigger deal of it than it should be. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't. I have no idea. Right. Again, you can, you can get confirmation on whichever bias you have there, or you just say, okay, this is a thing. It's not going away. And but I'm, I'm healthy and I'm young enough. I'm going to just going to go out and live my life. And if I get it, it's, it's probably not going to kill me. It, it may not really even have much effect on me. And I'm just going to go on. And like, I, I get that. Like I, I, I can see that line of thinking. Um, and, but at the same time, if you're uncomfortable being around other people, if you're uncomfortable going racing, I get that too. And I'll, I, I'll share, what I'm struggling with personally with this, not so much for, for my sake or for, for your sake as to having like empathy for me, just for perspective. Because as we just talked about, Illinois has been shut down and, and it looks like it'll continue to be shut down at least for the immediate future, right? And there's very little racing in our area. So for me personally, like this whole thing for two months, as much as it's been and inconvenience personally, it's really a minimal impact on me and my family, right? Like my wife and I both work from home. Now our son's at home with us, which brings in a dynamic, but in reality, we were kind of homebodies anyway. Outside of racing, we rarely do much that requires us to leave the house even, you know I mean? So while it's been a, an inconvenience and you take away things that we kind of take for granted and you take away freedoms, it feels like that we kind of took for granted. It's not like it's been a major lifestyle change for us. And, and in that regard, I feel really fortunate, right? We're luckier than, than many. At the same time, now as, as things kind of open back up, like I am anxious to get back to racing. Like we literally started the Vega two days ago for the first time in three and a half years, I heard the Vega it's a thing. It is alive. Right. That had to feel good. Oh, it was awesome. Right. Um, so I, and I am chomping at the bit as much as anybody, but at the same time, um, my wife's grandmother is essentially on her deathbed. Right. I mean, I don't think there's any way around it, but the, if, if there's anyone in the highest risk, category for this, it would be her. And a little bit even closer to home than that, we live within 15 miles of my mother and my in-laws. And they are of the age that this could be a concern for them, right? The, the, the virus. And they each are taking this very seriously. And perhaps rightfully so. In, in my opinion, I would say rightfully so. Like I would be concerned if I were them. Sure. So basically 
out of respect to them, because it's not a huge lifestyle change for us, we've said with just really within the last two weeks, like, okay, I got to see my mom, right? I, we got to go see Jess's parents. Well, out of respect to them, like we're not really going anywhere else because I feel like they're taking this very seriously. They're for the most part sheltering in place. Like, the last thing that I want to do is pass something on to something, someone that I love. So we're not taking any chances either. And now as, as racing becomes an option, I feel like my decision is, okay, do I want to see my parents on a regular basis, my, you know, and my, my in-laws, which I consider my parents as well, or do I want to go racing? Like, it doesn't feel like I can do both. And if that's the choice, then it's a no-brainer. Like, that's why we haven't been racing yet. You know, I mean, there's not immediate options here, but I could go racing. Um, and who knows, like, this thing is so fluid that their perception, their comfort level is subject to change. You know, as more information comes out, or maybe they just decide, hey, we're going to go on and live our life. But that's their decision, not mine. So I, maybe that's two weeks from now, and you'll see me racing. Maybe that's two months from now. Maybe it's the end of the year. Like, who knows? And I'm okay with that. Like, as much as I want to go racing, uh, I'm going to respect that. So I just think it'd be easy to pass judgment and go, oh, you're scared or like th this is not something you need to worry about and just again i share that not to have empathy for me but just to give perspective like everybody's making their own decisions for their own reasons right and and can justify them in their mind whether you would agree or argue with them or not yeah i definitely see both sides of that as you do luke and you know I don't think at this point the world is is terrified. Your average person is terrified of of getting COVID nineteen. Uh, I think they're just like you mentioned the scenarios you laid out. They're they're more worried about being a carrier for it. And the kind of events that you frequent have people from all over the country. So I don't know if if it would feel better if you could just go out to I-57 with people from a, you know, a 40, 50 mile radius and, and race with them, if you'd feel better about it. And you, it's got a little more scare factor when you got people from a 750 mile radius at the, at the facility that you're at. And again, we, the whole scenario is where we talked about seeing old friends and, you know, how you, how you greet them properly or, uh, normally, so those things have to change, but I, I think that we're going to have to get back to normal some shape, form, or fashion, and I believe that's going to kill the, I said kill the poor word, I, I think that's going to eliminate the the traditional or normal fear that we have right now of, of what COVID-19 can possibly do to us. And, you know, it's not just racing. I think if your local restaurants open up and you don't see 70% uh, of the people in the grocery store with a mask on, I think it just tends to take that away, take it out of your, your thought and, and put it out of your mind, so to speak and maybe give us all a little bit more normalcy and warm fuzzy over it. But uh, until 
all of life gets back to somewhat normal, I think racing will, will stay in the place that it's at right now. And, you know, I know that people are going to have their opinion on whether they want to go or not. But again, I assure you that having been to the races so far, um, people interact differently. And that in itself could, if not eliminate the, the risk, it'll certainly lower it quite a bit. And, you know, I, I think if we all commit to that, the people listening, when you go to the racetrack and Luke, when you finally get out to the racetrack, I think if we commit to how we interact and, and the racetrack does everything they can and Huntsville had, you know, a place to put tech cards where people wasn't going in the tower. They didn't allow tower traffic. You know, they, they wanted us to, to be big boys and girls and, and police ourselves. And by and large, I think we did that. But I, I really believe that if everyone will commit to that, we'll get these racetracks open, get to normal. And the, the racetracks in your area, when they see that pattern of success in the areas around them, the general area and farther out, I believe that'll give them the confidence and ammunition to get opened up themselves and we'll get the country back up and going uh, while differently still effectively. You bring up a really interesting point that I hadn't, I don't know that I've fully considered and, and, and I feel like we're getting pretty deep here, but that's cool. I, I'm, I'm down with that. The, uh, it just the idea that, again, I'll just speak from the perspective of being here, the longer things are shuttered, the more that we're shut down, I almost feel like the more fear it breeds in general interaction. Like To your point, as things open up, I feel like the mood, the attitude has to change a little bit into where you just, because you don't have, you fear the unknown. And, and as you get out there and realize, okay, like this feels a lot like it used to, I think I think it would quell and diminish a lot of those fears. Now, I'm not smart enough to say like that's the right thing to do because again, like whatever you read on either side of this, well, your opinion. I have, I don't know what's what's right or wrong. I can see both sides of it, but I do think you're onto something there. And I'll be completely honest: there is nobody that wants things to be back to normal more than me. So, like I, I hope you're right on all accounts and that this happens more quickly than certainly I would have thought a month ago. I'm, I'm much more open-minded now. As we look ahead, because to this point, I feel like we've talked about kind of the current climate and at least our understanding of how we got here. Uh, obviously, on the big dollar bracket tour, essentially every race scheduled, with very few exceptions, between the 1st of March and the 1st of May, right, were postponed, canceled. Um, and some beyond that date, some future races have already been pushed back. Um, over the course of really just the last week or two, we've gotten a lot of, as I said in the open, more definition, more clarity, more dates to put on the calendar. Um, one that jumps out, uh, obviously the Great American Million, which would be one of two unprecedented paydays this season. Um, so we got that event moved. It's obviously still going to be in Memphis. Uh, it moved from which that we would be there right now, right? Be this we weekend. would. Yes, the original date was Memorial Day weekend. Uh, that has now been moved to where is it here? October sixth through the eleventh again at 
Memphis. Um, a couple of highlights, uh, just kind of going through their notes, all the races that were on payment plans, the payment plans are, are done. If you've got a remaining balance, which I think most do because they cut those off a month or two ago, remaining balance will pay at the gate. Um, they've got a new payment plan, op, uh, $500 payment plan up as an option as well. And that race is nearly sold out. Yeah, there's 44 available entries remaining. And as it becomes apparent that hey, racing is a thing again and racers are racing in more parts of the country, I, I assume that that will sell out long before October 6th. Yeah, I agree. And that's, that is officially less than 10% of the total entries that are allowed right. that are available. So that, that number's really small. Why you might think 44 is a, a plenty number for you to wait and get in. That's a, that's a very small number. So uh, get your spot while you can. Uh, you we know, both know there are a couple of, couple of racers that could make phone calls and swallow up most of those 44 <laughs> yeah. if they were so inclined, right? Yes, that is true. So uh, need to jump on those spots, get them filled, and and secure your spot. And it's great to see, Luke, that that, that event has not suffered during the uh, – it looks like everyone's just kind of, um, well, for lack of a better term, stayed in place and held their position on uh, on their entries. So that's great to see that the racers have remained optimistic about it. And, you know, October, when it rolls around, it is going to be a phenomenal event. So. Looking and forward I to that. So fired up for that race. I mean, I was fired up for it when they announced it. Like, I'm gonna have the opportunity to race for a million freaking dollars, right? Like, a yeah, in early October in Memphis. Yeah, um, that's gonna have a that's gonna have a a, a kind of a nostalgic feel to it, right? Yeah, it'll have kind of a million uh -huh. uh, feel, uh, you know, point. from back in the old days. And you know, you remember how perfect the weather used to be there, yes. and um, that is a wonderful. Uh, wonderful climate that time of year in the the mid-south so it, i think that could lead to an even better event if that was possible i uh, yeah no I, i've been fired up about it from day one and from completely a selfish standpoint completely selfish standpoint i'm so fired up it's moving to october because i'm bullheaded enough like maybe i'd have showed up this weekend but i wouldn't even been on the racetrack in the vega God, maybe i'm not that dumb maybe i'm smart enough to get my money back <laughs> <laughs> it was not going to work out well for me. And I would like to think by October, I can have a competitive race car, you know, hopefully get to race between now and then and, and, and get things going. So that's great. And, uh, and I, again, completely selfish. I, I paid up front. So it, it almost, it's been so long ago now that it feels like a free roll. I'm like, hell yeah, let's go. <laughs> million to win. Right? <laughs> yeah. I get that. So yeah, I'm fired up. I'm, I'm ready. Yeah, um, likewise. And then next on the list is the Galat Fling. Yes. Luke, um, that is coming up the second weekend in June, or actually second week in June, if you will, as it's a nearly a week-long event. And um, all indications are that North Carolina's opened up and racing's allowed. The folks at Galat are already racing. They have um, let Peter and Kyle and Emily know that everything is good to go. So that's a sold-out Galat Spring Fling. Really looking forward to that. It'll it'll be a, a wonderful event there as always. And um, that same time frame, you've got uh, the Derby City 50K that uh, Tyler Bohannon has put on, or is putting on. And then, of course, as we mentioned to start the show, the the uh, Texas Two Step Pro One Texas Two Step uh, at uh, the Texas Motorplex. So. Um, I think that's, for me, that's, that's the weekend that I'll feel like racing's back. Yeah, I was going to say got, that. 
multiple cool. 50 granders going on in various parts of the country. Like I, I feel like to me, even if I'm just like following along on the internet, that's some degree of normalcy. Like I will be really fired up for that week. Yeah, should get plenty to watch that weekend for sure. Uh, other events that uh, are upcoming soon, SFG's got a couple of races uh, within the next two weeks, I believe. I believe it's this weekend at Darlington yep. and then next weekend at Cedar Falls. I'm sure they've got more um, yeah, on the, in the pipeline, but those coming up almost immediately. Uh, I, it just feels like by and large, and I realize it's not in every part of the country, I know that the, the coasts necessarily, particularly the Northeast and the, and the West Coast, <clears throat> are not racing at, at at any degree of normalcy yet but it feels by and large like the big dollar bracket scene is up and running again or will be very very soon yeah i agree and uh you know starting to starting to feel pretty normal from that standpoint uh, the only thing we're missing i, I think is uh, uh just a wide range of local Right. Uh, weekend racing which as we've discussed at length is is starting to happen so it'll be you know, pretty excited about yeah, by the time july rolls around luke it should feel almost completely normal yeah it'd be interesting i guess on a, on a number of levels like the big dollar bracket scene right now looks like it will be untouched by this but i think there's some sense of just pen up looking to get out got money that you haven't been able to spend for the last three months in a lot of cases ready to go like long term it will be interesting to see what impact this this hiatus has on the big dollar scene and i think we'll see much more immediately what impact it has on the local bracket racing scene and i had mentioned previously like I, i'm bullish on local programs at least in the in, in several pockets of the country just be interesting to see how that plays out you know over the course of the next six months yeah um, i agree transitioning to nhra uh, and and i feel like we're we're a ways into the the program before we talked about this and i, I had assumed it would be one of the leads but i nhra released their updated um lucas oil series schedule uh, and actually kicks off this weekend sort of i say sort of for because for our market it doesn't mean a whole whole lot um, but there is a regional event at the Texas Motorplex this weekend. When I say regional events, it's alcohol only. That's the only classes for NHRA points. Plus, I think there's like a booked-in pro mod show, which seems like a really odd place to start things off because obviously this is a spectator-driven model. And it, it just seems odd that we would start with that. But obviously, the, the laws and legislation in Texas allow that. It'd be interesting to see how that goes. Um, I think all indications are it'll be big and be a huge success. And then uh, almost immediately after, I think the first week of June, the the traditional Lucas Oil Series gets started in earnest uh, in Tulsa Division Four, Atlanta Division Two, and it rocks and rolls from there. As part of that release, um, I was surprised and intrigued by some of the events, facilities, locations that were included in that schedule. I think that was positive. Uh, like the, the double divisional in Sonoma is still on the schedule. Um, the, the divisional, which is a, a long ways off, but the divisional at Gateway, which is just on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River, still on the schedule. Um, so that's, again, like that, that, that brings about some optimism, at least for me, that obviously there have been talks and those races 
if not set in stone, are very, very realistic or feel realistic at this point. So I thought that was really good. And I'm sure I also announced, because I, I, I know when Brian Loans was on with us, I had asked him specifically, some of the sportsman racers, the, the big question is, okay, well, what happens with NHRA points for the sportsman categories? Are there world champions this year? Are there divisional champions? Do the quotas get cut down? And they, uh, they clarified that. What's always been um, take your best five out of eight division races and your best three out of six national events is just barely tweaked. It's still your best five divisionals, but instead of being able to attend eight this year, you attend seven. Or, I mean, you can attend as many as you want, but you have to take your best five out of the first seven you go to. And for nationals, it's still your best three, but now out of the first five. Um, so very little change, which when I first read that, I'll be honest, I was surprised because I just thought, well, you cut two plus months out of the season, really close to three months out of the season, out of what, an eight-month season? And you're basically still required to go to the same number of races. That seems like a big ask. And then I got to looking more at the schedule, and I realized it's, I think more than ever, certain racers will almost geographically be eliminated from competition, right? Like, that's kind of a given. I don't think there's a way around that. Competition for a world championship. Like, I just don't think from certain areas of the country, it's going to be realistic to make enough events in that short a period of time. Um, but when I look at the way that the schedule is laid out, there are so many double divisionals or events like the, the JEG Sports Nationals at Columbus that is a divisional leading up to a national event or the, um, the Brainerd Divisional is actually going to be the couple of days. I think it's like Thursday, Friday leading up to the national event. Like there's a lot more opportunity than there's ever been to get two races in one trip. And when you just kind of blow out from it, it's different as an NHRA racer. I can say, you know, like it's kind of nice having what, 30 plus weeks to get 14 races in. But now, I mean, we have still have to get 12 in what now, like 24 weeks? That still doesn't seem re unrealistic, right? So uh, I guess I was surprised initially. And then when I actually thought about it and looked at the schedule, I'm like, oh, well, okay, that, that seems to make sense. The, I think the interesting question, and this kind of gets back to what I had speculated on earlier, is whoever wins this year's NHRA World Championships, is there an asterisk by that? I mean, obviously you still come out on top, but I feel like more than ever, and let's be honest, I, I've said this before, winning an NHRA World Championship doesn't mean that you were the baddest dude out of the, let's say that you win the Superstock World Championship. It doesn't necessarily mean that you were the best racer out of the 1,500 Superstock racers that earn points throughout the year. What it really means is that you were the best racer of the 80 that went to all the races, right? That actually made the full quota of claims. That's essentially what you beat because there's not every competitor that owns a car that capable, uh, like it's not realistic for everyone. Everyone doesn't have the means, the time or whatever to, to make all of the races. So I don't really feel like you beat 1500 people, you beat 70, 80, whatever the case may be. I think that 70 to 80 this year shrinks significantly maybe it gets cut in half because if you're from, I mean, division six has always had a hard time making enough races. Like that's almost impossible this year. 
really from any coast. I think a lot of the division one racers are going to have a difficult time laying out a travel schedule that would allow you logistically to make enough events. And that's not even to speak of the vast majority of <clears throat> sports and racers. Like we have real jobs, right? And in order to get the time off to travel to 12 events in that condensed a period of time, like I just don't think it's going to be as realistic. So I do think that that field of, you know, at one time saying like, I was the best out of the 70 or 80 that chased it. Like you might be the best out of the 30 that chase it. And I think to some extent, I don't want to diminish the accomplishment of whoever wins the championships this year, but it is going to be a different field because I think it's going to be more ge geographically based and perhaps even more elitist than normal. And I think winning an NHRA world championship to some extent is elitist by definition, because there's just, it's not every racer that can, compete at that level and dedicate the time and resources to do it so. yeah it, yeah i agree it's definitely going to be different um do do i think is or is there an asterisk on there for me um it's according to what that symbolizes for you if it symbolizes that hey this was an unprecedented season and we changed the the rules and how we handle the the points championship chase then I'm okay with that. If we're putting it on there because people think it was easier for the winner to win, no, I'm not okay with that. It's just different. It, it was just a, a different set of parameters that, that they had to go by and, and rules that they had to go by. But I think it's equally as difficult, um, you know, because I would say a large portion of the available racers have been impacted financially as well so you know some of them are going to have to make even more uh, commitment and take even more risk to put themselves out there for a, a championship chase so um, as long as that asterisk means hey it was just a uh, an odd type of year and we changed some things to get our champion I'm, I'm cool with that but for no other reason I, I would support it and to be clear, like, I don't, I don't even mean that necessarily as a knock on NHRA. Like, I don't know what you do differently, right? It's a very, yeah, sure. to say it's a unique situation is an understatement, but I do, I, I think it impacts the, the championship chase this year. And, uh, and I don't know, it's intriguing to, it'll be interesting to watch how it unfolds. Jed, we've been, we've, we've put this off for like an hour. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I'm really excited. I know, I know, me too. All right, so you, you talked about this a little bit in the, in the open. What is your relationship to Michael Jordan and, and his career? You said you kind of felt like you grew up with him. Like, were you the MJ fanboy? Were you a Bulls fan? Were you a hater rooting for everyone else? Like, how did, how was, what was your perception of the Michael Jordan-led Bulls as it was happening? Well, uh, I was, um, I've been a huge basketball fan all my life. It's a time where I was playing a lot of basketball as well. Um, you know, I was, when Michael Jordan was uh, shooting for the national championship for, at North Carolina, uh, I was, you know, on the, the junior high or B team team at my high school. So, you know, I was, fascinated with him in college then follow him to the pros huge fan I was not fanboy level I didn't have to have his shoes of course that was a pipe dream in the house I grew up in um, you know I think those things come out and was 50 or 60 bucks and that wasn't 
you didn't buy those shoes in my house. Uh, now, when I, when I was the only kid left in the house, I did get a pair of uh, Ewing uh, gray and blue Georgetown Nikes that were about the coolest thing I've ever had. But, Ooh, wow. um, but I didn't have to have uh, Air Jordans, but was just mesmerized by his ability and how he just kept getting better and better and better and um, took the Bulls, not single-handedly, but certainly led the charge from a, a team that was mediocre at best, um, always seemingly searching for a, a great coach and team to finally it all coming together yeah, he for He said him. they were a bunch of cokeheads. <laughs> <laughs> finally, it come all it all come together and and you know watch that championship run, uh, both of those three peats. Uh, so. I'm, I have always been a huge fan of MJ, even to this point. Uh, when he had his baseball stint, he played it here in Birmingham. That's right. With the Birmingham Barons. I got to go out and see just how tall and um, lengthy and athletic he was on the baseball field. He was – he didn't just stand out because he was Jordan. He stood out because he looked different than everybody else on the field but was still so athletic and talented. I mean, people – Luke, they, they, they condemn that whole era of his life um, for, like, putting on a show or whatever. Do you realize this guy went from playing NBA basketball on a nightly basis with the best athletes in the world – to getting on a baseball diamond with people that made their living doing it, whether it was, uh, a, you know, Bush League, Junior League, whatever you want to call it, it was it double was A baseball here. This guy was hitting the ball. He was catching it. He was running bases, sliding, and doing it. At a, he didn't just make the team because he was Michael Jordan. Obviously, it was good for the owners of the team to have him on the field, the stands stayed packed and people wanted to see it. But this guy could play. I mean, he really could play. He, he's a, he's not a once-in-a-lifetime athlete because the Bo Jacksons of the world and Deion Sanders have proven that, that you can do this. But for him to play at the level he played in basketball and then just get out on the baseball field and compete, I don't think people still fully understand how difficult that was and how impressive it was. I really don't. I want to, I want to double click a little on something you said earlier, your personal basketball career. How, how long into life did that last? Cause I, I, I've got my own story as well. <laughs> well, I, I played it from the time you could play it as a child, as early as they would allow us to get out there, which I think back then was about six years old. Um, all the way through my senior year in high school, never never missed a season, whether I played it at the park level or school level. Uh, I played as a senior. And as far as um, organized, competitive, official basketball, that was it for me. Obviously, there was no other level for somebody at my talent level after high school. But uh, I have played basketball, Luke, and men's league, slow break, fast break, everything, up until um, – uh, basically two years ago uh, was my last competitive outing uh, on a on a team in an organized league. So, um, and that was at the age of, you know, 46, 47. So you, uh, 
in school, you last you outlasted me about four years. I uh, the same way. Loved basketball growing up. I was the prototypical white guy. Like I had a hoop in my backyard. <laughs> I shot on it for hours on end. I could shoot. I was look. I uh, there were times I think I envisioned that I was fairly athletic. Looking back, I was never athletic. I never really could do anything. I wasn't a particularly good ball handler. I don't think I ever bought in on defense. I wasn't big. I wasn't tall. I certainly wasn't fast. I could shoot. And, uh, and for a long time, my perception was that made me a pretty good basketball player. And uh, through junior high, like I played on the A team. Um, I was the, the third string point guard on the A team, but I was on the A team. And uh, it was, it was, I played through eighth grade and I think it was in eighth grade. And then certainly that summer, two things happened. Three things happened. Number one, I realized that I was getting wider, not taller (laughs) to to sport like basketball. Everyone else was getting faster and I was not. And racing really became a thing in my life. And like, I was better at that and it seemed more fun. So basketball kind of went by the wayside. They would have taken a whole lot more work to be somewhat good at basketball than it was at the time to be somewhat good at racing. So that's yeah. the direction that I went. Now, to your point, I've kind of resurfaced in recent years. I also play in a men's league, have a ball with it, uh, wondering often if I'm reaching the age where that's not the most intelligent thing for me to be doing. But for right now, love doing it. So what's your body out? will tell you. When yeah, time, that's, that's, that's what I understand. And actually, <laughs> among the group that I play with, I'm one of the younger guys, which is kind of crazy. So oh, yeah. it makes me feel young anyway. Yeah. What? Back to the, the, the 10-part documentary that neither of us missed a minute of. What stood out to you the most from the doc? It could be anything. Um, I feel like the documentary showed me that Jordan was somewhat of a bully. Um, you know, that I, I guess the editing and, and production can make anyone look any way that they want them to. And I don't think they really wanted to make him look like a bully, but it just seemed like he was in control of everybody. And, you know, I get that some of that was probably out of necessity. He probably had to push players to be their best he he probably had to stand up for contract negotiations and um, things that he wanted out of his playing career and and bully leadership of the team and whatnot but he was obviously the alpha and I think when you're as talented as he was and is to some extent that's unavoidable but yeah I I was going to say I think the all your greats are like that. I think the Kobe's, LeBron's, all of those players are like that. So I'm not sure it was anything different than, than we see today, but it just brought out a side of him that I don't think I ever really uh, got a look at. Yeah, no, it was kind of illuminating on that regard. And and you just know too, because I don't feel like, like Bill Simmons refers to a lot of today's documentaries as like info docs, you know, they're, everything is is signed off on or or produced by the player itself and and the the video rights to you know that last season's videos they belong to jordan's team right to to jordan so he had final say in this so he's not going to paint too bad a picture but even with that like i do feel like they went into parts of his personality that would make people 
oh, you know, kind of like you did, like, I, I never really knew that was a thing. So I, I liked the honesty there, but I'm sure that there was more that, you know, wasn't brought to light or didn't make the screen. I think for me, the thing that stood out most initially was just like you, like, I, get, I feel like I grew up with Jordan and, and in my mind, not just him, like that entire team, because I was the ultimate Bulls fanboy. Like I remember, and it wasn't just a complete bandwagon thing. Like I was a, I was invested in Jordan seemingly from the beginning, like when he came back from the broken foot. And I remember crying when they lost to the Pistons, you know, cause that was what two years in a row, they couldn't get over that hurdle. Right. And I thought it was MJ's time. Right. So I felt invested, you know, and I, and I felt, uh, I got a lot of happiness when they did get over that hump. Like you, I, I never owned a pair of Jordans. Like we just, I think you said it best, like spending money on things like that wasn't, wasn't a thing in our household, but I had the pennants. I had bull shirts, never like the Jersey. I was never the cool kid, but I, you know, I scarfed up the Walmart special bull shirts. Right. So I, but on the doc, like what stood out the most to me was MJ and the whole team and basically the entire NBA from that area is immortalized in my mind. Like I still envision Michael Jordan at 35, like as the old player, right? And, and I think of the highlights at 28 and it just doesn't register with me that the dude's 57 years old and he looks 57 years old. And I'm like, what the hell happened here? I'm glad I'm not getting older, my God, right? So <laughs> that I think was the most jarring thing and it makes perfect sense, but it was Jordan. And then you go over to Scottie Pippen and he looks like he's in his thirties. Like that dude looks young. Jordan doesn't. Right. And most of the other people interviewed, they, I'm like, wow, these guys are old. And he wasn't in the, um, it didn't make the documentary, but I just saw a clip like E60 or something of Carl Malone. Have you seen Carl Malone lately? Yeah. That dude yeah. looks like uncle drew. Yeah, I mean, he looks like he's different. in his 70s. Yeah. It's so jarring because I, yeah, it just doesn't seem that long ago. We're getting old. We're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> the, to, I guess I'll, uh, I'll, I'll circle back on, on your point too. And I feel like this is going to be like an unpopular opinion, but yeah, like what you had said about Jordan, the dude was kind of a psychopath or, or a sociopath. Like I'm not smart enough to know the difference, right? And I don't mean to say this as, as, as a judgment on Michael Jordan, like who the hell am I to pass judgment on Michael Jordan, right? But obviously, like whatever he did, however he, he lived his life, it, it worked for him, right? So, yeah. but I, I look at this as more uh, of a judgment, not so much a judgment. I, I worry about the judgment that the rest of us, you know, the, the mere mortals, the non-Michael Jordans, who are viewing ourselves as competitors through his lens, because I feel like he gets a pass. Like the dude was the greatest of all time. You, they could have said in that documentary, yeah, Michael Jordan gets on there and says, you know, after practice each day, I would, I would shower. And then I would put back on my practice clothes, just a sweaty gym clothes. And I would sleep in them because, you know, it just made me feel it. He could have said that and we'd have all like, yeah, man, that makes sense. Right. It worked for you. <laughs> right. So I feel like whatever comes out, like he, he gets a pass, but his outlook, like the, the way that he would just latch on to any perceived slight is like, 
so unhealthy for the vast majority of us, right? Like, I mean, that dude, the things that, that they'd said there, like George Carl, the, the coach of the opposing team, they're at dinner and he doesn't come over to say hello. And Jordan's like, I took it personal then. Like, and then the whole thing was just, I got to go beat that guy. That's not it, right. And you're like, who does that? Right. And, and then there was the one, I don't even remember the player's name. Some, some dude that I honestly don't remember or never heard of hung like 36 on Jordan one game. And according to Jordan, after the game, the guy's like, Hey man, good game. And he's like, Oh, and that just flew all over me. Right. That made it personal. <laughs> and so they get the same team on the next night and he tells all of the guys in the locker room, I'm going to, what did he have? 36. I'm going to hang 37 on him in the first half. And he did it. <laughs> and then it comes out like 10 years later, somebody asks him about it and they're like, did that guy really tell you good game? And he's like, no, I don't think so. I don't think he said anything. So the dude didn't say anything. And he's just like, he manufactures this whole story to get a chip on his shoulder. And he's like, that's not, I'm going to get it. Right. Like there always had to be something driving him. And so he does that and we love it, especially in retrospect. And, and I do, I will say like, I love the fact that it, it felt like he came across as so honest and transparent. And I think that made the documentary great right? That he's willing to say this stuff that you could look back and be like, that's kind of messed up, but I can appreciate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I love the, the whole Isaiah Thomas yes, discussion. Yes. Like and, whatever you do, you're not going to convince me he's not an asshole. Like, yeah, 30 way, years ago, dude. Right. He just rolled his eyes when they wanted to show him what Isaiah said. Like whatever, dude. <laughs> sure. It changed now. Right. I mean, you just that grudge and that, that yeah. chip on the shoulder, like always been there. Right. So I just feel like with the benefit of, of hindsight and the bias of success, we look at that and smile and go, man, that's just MJ, right? But if there's a, a bench player, like the 10th guy on the bench on an NBA team is what in the top 0.01% of basketball players in the world, right? If you're on, the, if you're on an NBA bench, you do not suck at basketball, right? But Ooh, a bench player definitely. in the NBA says some of the things that MJ says, and we're like, that dude's lost his mind, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> and, and you just transfer that into our world in racing or in any, force, any, any form of life. We all know that guy, right? Just with a constant chip on his shoulder that like everything is a slight. I'm going to prove all these guys wrong. And like yeah. the racer that says, that bitch can't beat me. Look, <laughs> he beat you the last 12 times that you ran. Like, maybe you should just get better right? Maybe it's not about that guy. They're, they're, we all know that guy, right? And, and, and they're just, God, they're taxing. Like they're, that, that guy is a whip to be around, right? Well, Michael Jordan was that guy, but he got away with it because he's Michael Jordan. And I don't know that necessarily that constant chip on his shoulder, like that constant drive, I don't, I would argue that's not what made him great. Like he was great enough that he could get away with that. So I just, as, as someone who earns a living helping people better understand competition and personal performance, like I kind of cringe at some of the stuff that Jordan said. I'm like, God, don't let people take this to heart. Like this is not, this is not the best way to go about that, right? And, and I'm not going to say that I am above it by any means, but I, I look at this as there's two ways to approach performance and it is you can approach it like my singular goal is to be the best or you can approach it as my goal is to be my best, be the best that I can be. 
right? And I, I think there, it's that difference is subtle, but monumental and really important. And don't get me wrong, like I've had moments in, in racing, everything for me resorts back to racing really, because that's my comp competitive outlet, right? And I think most of us listening to this would say the same thing. Sure. So I, don't put it past me. Like I've had moments where I'm like, F that guy, right? Like, <laughs> Right. I, I'm not, a, I'm not above that, but by and large, like literally for as long as I can remember, I have just been intrigued by seeing how good I could become in reaching like my personal best and the best version of myself. And I just, I mean, that's where I try to lead people is like, hey, man, don't get caught up in whether or not you're better than this guy or they think they're better than you. The, the reality is that once you get to a certain point, you are supposed to think that no one can beat you, right? But the reality is like in what we do, the biggest advantage at the track might be like 55, 45. And you kind of respect that. You're like, yeah, like I'm not going to win all the time. Like, I just, that, that attitude, that Jordan, like everything, you've, everything's got to be us against them. Everything's got to be the world is out to get me or there's just no motivation. Yeah, like I cringe at it. And admittedly, like very few of us, <laughs> none of us, I'll say, will ever reach Michael Jordan status. And perhaps like when you get to that point, you've got to create additional motivation because where do you go when you're the best right what is, where is the drive and maybe that's where some of this stems from um but i like i say i just thought it was interesting and it kind of taken aback like whoa man like you can get away with that because you're jordan but dude <laughs> yeah, nobody else can say that no <laughs> <laughs> yeah very interesting take on it uh it is odd that the greatest of all time had to continuously figure out how to motivate himself through these, whether manufactured or um, taking something wrong, whatever he was doing, he had to figure out how to motivate himself to, to go out and dominate his opponent. But, you know, obviously his method worked. Now, did it make him look somewhat crazy? Yes, but it worked and it, you know, it, uh, it accomplished the goal that he had for himself and his team and, and his organizations. Um, but I think happy to watching all 10 of those episodes the one thing i'm sure of was if you loved him before you love him even more and if you hated him before you hate him even more it it, it heightened whatever level you're at on the scale no doubt in my mind i i don't know i think i think by and large he came across as I don't know if likable is the right word, but you almost had to respect him. Like I've, I've talked to people that were not Jordan fans and like they, uh, they, they can identify with him and like him a lot more after watching this, if that makes sense. Uh, to your point, I, I, I think whatever bias you have, probably it's, it's easy to stem from that. But I do think like he came across as like, okay, like I, I still would never root for this dude, but I get it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Probably so. It, it's just amazing. The, the frame of mind and, and even 30 years later, like, I mean, they asked him coming into the NBA finals against the jazz. What was your motivation? Like, Oh, Carmelo was the MVP. Yeah. He should have him MVP. off. Yeah. I mean, this was a guy that was a peer that was a friend, you know, <laughs> he's like, yeah, no, he should have been the MVP. It should have been me. Like who cares? <laughs> yeah. You know, they didn't he discuss did. it. 
they didn't discuss it in the documentary, but uh, that I saw anyway. I don't know if I missed it, but you know, Charles Barkley was one of his best friends. I mean, for 20 years, and Charles made public comments about uh, how Michael Jordan needed to get rid of his entourage, so to speak, and get people around him that were going to help him create a better team uh, as an owner. And it just pissed him off so bad he did away with him. Completely will not talk to him. Uh, just like questioning the guy at all was not allowed. You just couldn't do it. Right. Even one of his best friends. So uh, doesn't you know does sound a little crazy, but that's who he is, is and that's that's what's got him where he is. So what's uh how I mean we'll close on this because I think we could you and I could talk about this for hours yeah. and at some point we got to cut off. But how great was the dialogue between him and Larry Bird? Oh, oh my God. amazing. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and definitely enlightened me to uh, how they act on the court and then off the court. It's a total 180 of when you're, you know, and it wasn't just Larry Bird. It was a lot of players he played against. But, you know, you see, you see those uh, going in the locker rooms or meeting in the hall to shake hands and kind of razz each other and hug and move on. But, you know, on the court, it was a uh, tenacious atmosphere between two great players. And it, was, it was really cool. I, again, it, the whole thing just showed me a, a side that I basically want to see about every great player that's ever played. Could you imagine hearing – Johnny Ezell tell John LaBouche Jr., well, at least, I mean, you're out of this race. You got some time to go work on your golf game. <laughs> like that just, uh, oh, it's so great. Yeah. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was good stuff. All right, let's transition now. We've been doing some top fives. Um, when we did this, uh, what was it? The, uh, the, the racers that we'd most like to see a documentary on, right? We got some, we got some really good feedback from that. I had a ton of fun with it. Um, top five for, for today. Our top five unsung track employees. Like essentially the, 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 the track employee, it could be from any track, any series in the country that just when you see them, you can't help but smile, right? And then these people never get enough credit. Could be any 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 of the thankless jobs that are that are routinely done at the racetrack oh i'll let you start i, I guess we'll go five to one like i don't i don't really have mine ordered but and i and i'm my, my list is going to be somewhat affected by yours so we're going to start at number five uh yeah i'd like to start at number eight out of my top five um oh you're going a, dead on us here huh okay yeah i just couldn't do five it a, B, I, C, I couldn't do yeah. it okay uh, and this is not necessarily a ranking. This is just kind of how they pop yeah, up in my head. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one is Sally Martini, uh, the the parking agent, if you will, for spring fling events, fall fling events. Uh, she does it for NHRA, for NASCAR. Um, Luke, you've parked people. You Sally's know nice. how challenging that job is and how you have to somehow tell people that they're they're going to be parked differently than they envisioned the whole ride to the racetrack. Are you kidding me? I've parked people at I-57 drag strip in the rain. <laughs> yes, you I have. mean, it's literally, hey, man, pull up here, get a run and go at it, get as far as you can. <laughs> you get stuck, we'll hook a tractor to you and pull you into your spot. 
<laughs> but Sally I've had does that it. conversation. Yes, <laughs> Sally does it with a smile, and it's almost like you just can't help but just you know she park you in a in a cornfield, and you're you're gonna say, well, okay, Sally, I appreciate you saving me this spot. So um, she's an unsung hero to me, just a, a wonderful person That's at the racetrack. Point. She's awesome. And outside of Sally, has anyone ever been thanked for a parking spot? Like it's never good enough. But to your point, you can't be mad at Sally. Yeah, you can't. She doesn't allow it. Uh, should I continue? Just Absolutely. To... Yeah. I mean, if you've got eight top fives, then yeah, go for a couple more. I, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next one that came to mind was Greg Dugan at Prescott uh, Drag Strip or Dragway or Raceway or whatever it's called in Prescott, Arkansas. Um, a guy that uh, you just never hear of he's in charge of the traction and does some other things around the facility you just never hear of issues there it's like this place is perfect all the time and I got to see it firsthand getting up early getting out there and working hard on the racetrack and getting it prepared and just really someone that cares a lot about what he does he doesn't just have a formula and goes out there and does it he he pays attention, makes sure the cars are, are getting down it the way he wants them to, and does a phenomenal job, um, kind of a grunt worker there at Prescott. It's been a long uh, time since I've been to Prescott. I, I, I can't imagine this is the same man. Like, I remember a big man, white beard. Um, I, don't, I don't know his name. Is that the same dude? No, I don't think that's Greg. This is prior ownership, and I, it's been 20 years since I've been to Prescott, so. Yeah, I think he's a Greg's one of Jackie Lewis guys. Gotcha. Um, next for me is a guy that if you're listening in the mid south, um, you're going to know who this is. Jackson, Tennessee, Jackson Dragways Pokey. Now I'm I'm really I really enjoy them, Luke, where they got a nickname. You know, that's, those are our most endearing. Uh, people My list there. has several nicknames. I'm yeah. sure. Um, Pokey was a guy that kind of stayed at Jackson Dragway all week, getting it ready, doing things. And um, I remember in the uh, early 90s, early to mid 90s, I used to go there and race some five grand foot brake races and got there one uh, Friday morning or Friday afternoon. And they told me a story about Pokey. Uh, Pokey was there at the racetrack. It was hot, June, July type time of year. And Pokey was um, found in the tower on Thursday, had uh, pretty much uh, passed out or stroked out of, of heat exhaustion and uh, had some form of stroke. And that happened on Monday, Luke. He, he went out on Monday. They found him the, on Thursday? The man delivering Coca-Cola to the racetrack found him on Thursday in the tower. Oh, wow. Pokey, Pokey should have been gone. But not only did Pokey live, <laughs> Pokey announced that weekend. I mean, they found him on Thursday, got him to the hospital, I beat him up, got him, got him straightened out, and he come back and did all the announcing for the weekend. So uh, that was a, a guy that I think a lot of people just thought a lot about, and Pokey was a guy that worked really hard at the racetrack. Uh, I don't think he's around Jackson anymore, but he was an unsung hero. And my number five, I will just do half of my top five and get to number five, <laughs> is the lovely and talented and wonderful Sally Smith, the computer operator at Bristol Dragway. 
Um, they, I'm a victim. I mean, I'm guilty as charged. Uh, she's been a victim of what we've thrown at her, double entries and, you know, nearly 500 foot brake cars with IHRA numbers, you know, 1X09CP37P, and then they got to dial in. And she has put up with some garbage and she never complains. She just sits over there and does it. And she does it extremely well. There is minimal to no mistakes made by Sally Smith and through fling events, WFC events and all that, just a, a wonderful person at the racetrack that has uh, dedicated a lot of time, a lot of her personal time to coming in and working events and, and does it without complaint. So Sally, shout out to you. That's yeah, half I my top five. I'm uh, I'm not here to to debate the greatness of, of Sally Smith with you by any means, but I feel like you're pandering to your audience. Like I, I feel like you've got alternative motives here. So I understand where you're coming from. These are my personal experiences, Luke. How else do you put a list together? That's fair. That's fair. All right. So I've been affected personally. I, I also have a, a list of eight or nine, but I'm going to do it a little bit differently. Somehow I'm going to narrow this to five, and then I'm going to give some honorable mentions maybe so all right so number five i'm gonna go with a woman by the name of chrissy she hands out the time slips at brainerd minnesota brainerd not georgia brainerd yeah how can i say this best without without alienating the other track workers at brainerd international <laughs> raceway it's i don't get the sense when I pull into Brainerd, I don't want to say I feel unwelcome. It's not the hospitality that we're used to down south. Okay, yeah. it's just it's just a different atmosphere, and maybe it's that corporate feel, whatever. Like it, they're just not the most welcoming crew from top to bottom, with one exception, Miss Chrissy that hands out the time slips. This woman is always smiling. Like I'm, I'm, I've gotten a time slip from her in a monsoon. And she's grinning ear to ear, right? <laughs> to the point, at first, I'm like, what is with this woman? Like, literally, the first year or two, this chick is way too happy, right? And But I've, I've been to Brainerd six, seven, maybe ten times. It's always the same. She's so consistent. And I don't know what you get paid to hand out the time slips at Brainerd International Raceway, but I would assume it's not life-changing money. This woman, yeah. and I just... Again, the, the, the feeling that I've got from the rest of the staff there, there is no doubt in my mind that this comes out of her own pocket. But every year at the national event, not only does she hand a time slip, with every time slip, I think to every competitor in every category for four days, with your ticket, you get an icy pop or a Tootsie Roll or a sucker. And she's just got a box of these things that she has no doubt purchased with her own money. Get the heck out. And is handing them out with every ticket. It's amazing. Like I'm telling you, you can lose and just be excited to see her. It's incredible. It's it's awesome. And she's so like I almost felt bad last year. I got close in both cars. I lost in the semis in one and the and then runner up in the other. And she was legitimately like, not only is she bubbly, but she follows along with what's going on. So she's, you know, fruit and yawn, fist bumps, this and that, you know, I mean, she's into it. And I come around for my last ticket after losing the final. And I thought she was going to cry. Now, I know that she just high-fived the dude that beat me, 
right? Because she knows everybody, but she seems legitimately upset for me, like more upset about it than I was. And I'm like, it's going to be okay. You know, I'll probably come back next year. So yeah, Chrissy of Brighton. Awesome. She's, she's my number five. Awesome. I love her and I don't have any idea. <laughs> Great. I'm, I'm glad I painted a good picture. All right. Number four. For me? Sure. Oh, awesome. Um, see, I don't like how you ended my last segment of my last four. Because see, so now, now you got to go back. Yeah. Okay. Now you got me feeling uh, self-conscious <laughs> about it, but um, a guy that was, are, are all your top four from Bristol? Or no? <laughs> pretty close. Uh, <laughs> but they bounce around a little bit. They, they go, uh, they go everywhere. Um, but Sean Clark, Racer X, mm, uh, yes. spring fling events. This guy works extremely hard. He is totally invested in the quality of the product and, and cares. He's not just there to do a job. He's there to make the event as good as he can possibly make it and just puts in tons of hours. Um, you know, folks might know him as the, the, the prize vault, um, I guess, captain at the, the fling events, but he does so much more uh, through his organizing and all that. And just a guy that works really hard. And I really enjoy working with him. And again, this is a personal experience, I know, but um, certainly somebody that's an unsung hero and, and a key member of the fling team. That's a good pick. Sean is very much unheralded because he, he lingers behind the scenes. Obviously, Pete and Kyle dominate that the, the public side of the fling but Sean is a huge huge part of that success absolutely yeah. that's that's a good pick um all right so for four <laughs> okay I got a lot of water box guys because like that's just it takes a unique breed of human being to want to work the water box on like a hundred degree day and the people that are excited to be there doing that job they get a ton of respect for me, right? Good point. So I've got a few that stands out. And the one, I don't know the name. I don't know if this dude is still doing his thing. I don't even know if this dude's still alive. But there was a man that worked the water box at two tracks because he was at both of them. And granted, this has been 20 years ago. Um, but Arkansas City, Kansas and Wichita, Kansas. I don't know if it was even logistically possible for him to work both tracks, you know, in in unison but i know when i went to arc city he was there and when i went to wichita he was there so i don't know if he transitioned or consistently worked them both whatever i don't know the dude's name i wish i could get dan wheeler on the podcast right now just to do his impression because it's spot on but i'm telling you i was the last time i was at arc city i was like 18 years old and i was in two finals i lost the, the only round of the day i lost i lost to tim nicholson who was banging gears the same gears in the same camaro that he dominates super gas with now and i thought i've got this freaking 550 camaro with a linko i am winning and i was wrong right so but it was after that round this dude who was very animated right in the water box like you could just tell this guy is special right and very into his job fired up going 90 to nothing all day long long hair whole thing right comes up to me in the stage lines afterwards and he's like man you're that kid right yeah f yeah man f yeah good job jay man you, you i thought you were gonna win them both man 
yeah, yeah. You won one and run it up. F, yeah, F. Yeah, man. Yeah. Where are you from? Texas? Your dad lets you, man, that's awesome, man. F, yeah, F. I wish I had Daniel Wheeler on it because I'm not doing this justice. If we could get Wheeler here, he will lay this out. I mean, but yeah, but I think what was the funniest part about it was Wheeler told me about this dude and I'm like, yeah, you know, this is, this is an exaggerated version. And when the guy came and talked to me, spot on. Like it was absolutely to a T, Wheeler nailed it. Yeah, that's so good. Shouts stuff. to that guy, whatever your name is. I'm sorry. Arkansas City, Wichita, you're the man. I love him too. <laughs> <laughs> Next up for me, Luke, in the number three spot is uh, is a guy we all know and love, and I've worked with him a lot. So, again, back to my personal experiences with people. but And he's not necessarily an unsung hero because I think he's viewed as about the best at what he does by a very large group of racers from children to grown people, but cowboy, um, Cowboy's Kurt awesome. Smith yes. works the staging lanes at, uh, a lot at Bristol at the major events there. He works the staging lanes at all fling events. Um, this guy's in his seventies, man. And that is a grueling job. I didn't ever guess he was that age. Yeah. He does doesn't sit at the front in a chair and point you out. He lets you know 10, 12, 15 pair back, Luke, who you're racing. I mean, who does that? No, staging lane guys, no offense to them, but that's not a common practice for them. But Kurt wants to make sure that everybody has got all the info they can possibly use to prepare themselves to go out. He cares a lot about his job and puts miles and miles and miles on those feet in those cowboy boots and, and does it generally with a smile. Um, just, uh, again, he's not necessarily unsung because he's known so well, but that is, uh, that's kind of a thankless role for the most part, and he does it uh, very well. I would agree. I think cowboy is the best in the business. I think um, that job, like, I think is very underrated in terms of like you essentially hold the cards for the entire competition and in pairing racers. Right. And to the extent that he goes, like you say, making sure that everyone's in the loop. I, I just think it's very, very, I think it would be very difficult to do that job. I don't know that I've ever done it. I think it would be very difficult to do that job because on one hand, you have to be very much in command. Right. I mean, you have to take over and be willing to take over. Sure. And I think it's very, very difficult to do that in the manner in which he does and still essentially be everyone's friend. You see staging lane operators that are one of the two, very rarely both. Cowboy pulls it off. He does both. He is absolutely yeah. in command. You answer to him and yet everyone loves him. And I think that's a really, really difficult line to walk. Well said. Um, okay, so number three, where do I, okay, another one, I don't know the name, but if you have ever, I would say if you have ever attended, and most definitely if you have ever competed in the big go, the U.S. Nationals, you know exactly who I'm talking about. There is an intersection in the pits at Indy. It's a four-way intersection that has, like, after you get your time slip, you 
turn to get back to the sportsman pits, you come into this intersection essentially blind. It is the intersection from that road off the return road with the, the main pit road, so all of the staging lane traffic, all of the spectator foot traffic, and opposite that, the fourth part of the intersection is an entrance gate, like for non-racing vehicles. So it is this just hubbub of activity and danger and it's just a really, it's odd at a racetrack that you see that much stuff coming into one place and one of them essentially being completely blind to the, to, to the competitors coming off the track. Like you can't see anything coming from either direction. There is a mm-hmm. man that stands at this intersection for six days and directs traffic at Indy. It's the same dude every time I've been, every day. He's not a young man and he has got, it's the most annoying whistle and it's <laughs> for you for honestly for two years i thought it was legitimately a whistle and i'm like how does this man blow this whistle a thousand times a day come to find out it's like something that he presses like it's a thumb you know it whistles and he doesn't have to whistle <laughs> but this dude i mean if you had to park there i, I couldn't take it it's just non-stop whistle and waving but this dude is animated he doesn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that he's bubbly. Like he's not necessarily smiling or waving at everybody. He's doing his job, but it is so apparent that he is thrilled to death to be there for six days on his feet, directing traffic, blowing the stupid whistle. Like it's a necessary job and he loves it. Like I, I would not feel comfortable going through that turn without him there. And he loves being there. Like that dude is an unsung guy. I have no idea what his name is, but I'm telling you, if you've been there, you know who I'm talking about. That guy's awesome. Number three on my list. Sound like an awesome guy and uh, somebody that's possibly saving lives. So that's good stuff. My number two, Luke, and and all I've got is a first name, and he might not even have a last name because everybody just knows him. Everybody just knows him by his first name, and that's Perry at Huntsville Dragway. Perry's a water box worker. He will. Uh, he's the guy that goes out and gets cars that are broken. He's the guy that helps push you off the racetrack or, um, you know, get up rocks, clean up rocks from between the starting line. Of water he's just a do-all. He's a do-all guy, but does it with an amazing attitude and seemingly is pulling for everybody there. I mean, it seemed like he wants everybody there to win. I mean, he's always pulling for me. And I let him down a lot. But Perry is the guy that kind of brings you forward and tells you, all right, that's where you want to stop and do your burnout. I don't trust that from a lot of guys. You know, I want to get where I want to get. And I like a spot where I want to get. But Perry knows 300 cars at the racetrack. He knows where every single one of you want to be and needs to be. And he's just educated on that process, puts you there, and it's a respect thing that I just, I can't let myself move from where he wants me. He tells me when to spin my tires over. He tells me where to stop. He tells me when to burn out. Luke, he will even release me from the burnout. He will tell me when I have smoked my Hoosiers well enough that I will get maximum traction on the starting line. And he sends me to the starting line with confidence. Perry's that kind of guy. Just you can tell it takes a lot of pride in what he does, and he's been there for God knows how long. I mean, every year I've ever raced there, Perry's been there. We've grown up together. So, Perry, 
with no last name in Huntsville Dragway, you're my man, number two. Very, here's to you. I agree. And that's actually, that's, that's the direction that I'm going with my last two. Like I say, I've got a soft spot for the water box worker and I'm torn what direction to go here because I, I think there's a, there's a decent chance that your number one would be on my list, but I'm going to save I, it. Not because uh, it's difficult for me to differentiate between these two. I just, I, I think I have a better story for, for this one. So I'm going to save it. I avoided it, Luke. Okay. But I agree with it wholeheartedly. I know who you're struggling okay. trying to pick between, and both are awesome. So okay. go with it. So number two, I'm going to go to Music City Raceway. And you said that there are people that can be identified by their first name, and that's special, right? First name alone. Neither one of the top two, I don't know their name. I know what they go by. Number two on my list, money. Money, money. If you've been to the hill, if you've been to Music City Raceway, you know money. I saw, it was shared with me because I, I, I told our members of This Is Bracket Racing Elite this morning, we were going to have this discussion, right? And, and give me some nominees. Money was already on my list, but one of our members shared a video of money. And we're, I've got to figure out, we're gonna share that to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast page so that if you've never been to Music City, you can fully appreciate who money is and what money does. Money is, in my experience, the most animated water box worker I have ever raced with. Not only, as you said with, with Perry at Huntsville, not only does he pull you up into, into spot, he gets into it. Like, get on up here, get a whoa right there, right? And then it's a get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, go. I mean, he waves you through the whole process <laughs> and is fired up and is fired up for every single one of them, right? And this dude, I, whatever, he's the water box guy. Like, so I don't get an opportunity to interact with him. He's working. And when I see him, I'm racing, right? He comes, I had one at Music City one day and he walked over as we were doing the, the winter circle picture and I shook his hand and was like, man, I appreciate what you guys do. Like I would tell any worker that's been in a hundred degree heat all day long. Right. And this guy money actually looks right at me and he's like, man, I just, congratulations. Great job. And thanks for letting me be a part of it. I'm like, do what, man? I know <laughs> you don't need me to show you how to do a burnout but you let me show you how to do a burnout and it's just freaking awesome. And it makes my day. And I thought that's cool. Right. I mean, who says that? <laughs> so the story on money and I was there, this is shoot, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, somewhere in that range. Tracy Guffey's doing a burnout in his dragster at the hill. Flywheel comes apart, slits money's bicep. I mean, there's beyond stitches, like damn near to the bone. Cause he's, he's standing there, you know, no. in the burnout. And I mean, obviously the place shuts down, the paramedics are there. Everybody's rightfully concerned about money. And, uh, they, I'm, I don't remember the details. I'm pretty sure they wished him off to the hospital. Like it was a pretty serious deal. Right. By the end of the night, money wasn't back at the track. Money was back in the water box. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, just just a dude that just loves what he does, and I cannot do justice to how fun it is not only to watch but to be in the car when he's coaching you through the burnout. Like this dude is into it. I'll share the video. There's just I'll quit talking. You just got to see it. Money number two. 
yeah, y'all make sure y'all tune into that. It is pretty cool and a great story on money. Very well-known guy. So uh, my number one, Luke, is when I think about unsung heroes, you know, you, you think about specific positions at the racetrack and guys that do them, like water box guy, ticket booth girl, those type things. But mine is a guy that at any given time, you will see him in every single spot at the racetrack, at this particular track, and he's been doing this for 25-plus years. And it's Alex Young at Huntsville Dragway. Alex is capable, and I've, I've seen him announce. I've seen him run the computer, run the starting line, the water box. The, you know, he's the guy that cuts the grass. He's the, the guy that fixes whatever little computer issue they might have. Um, just capable of every single job at the track, every single one of them. And I've seen him work every single job at the racetrack. Um, a guy that keeps that place going. He's, he's vital to the success of it. He is um, very, un fits the word unsung to a T. Very low key, stays out of, you know, the middle of things. Just works, whole time he's there. Works, works, works. And again, has been doing it for two decades plus, maybe even three. So to me, that is a guy that that epitomizes the the unsung hero tag. And Alex Young is, is definitely that guy at Huntsville Dragway. Man, I'm glad to see Alex get some love. That's a good dude and unsung and unassuming. And to your point, I can't imagine that place operating without Alex. And he's done it like he has been the mainstay uh, over several different ownerships. Yep. No matter what's going on at Huntsville, Alex is there and seemingly making and pulling all the strings. You know, I mean, like you said, he can do it all. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Um, I I think you I get the impression you know where I'm going with my number one. If my yeah. list would not be complete without a money my list would not be complete without a rooster. All right, so I'm going with rooster. Uh, I'm, I'm sliding him into the number one spot. Difficult for me to differentiate, honestly, between he and money. I, I just feel like I've got a funnier rooster story, so I wanted to save it for last. So rooster, water box man at Memphis for years. I think he's at Holly Springs now. I know he bounced back and forth a little bit between the two, but that area, right? And just another super animated, super likable. Like, you can't go race at a track that Rooster's at and not know that Rooster was there, right? Yeah, no doubt. So here's my Rooster story. And this doesn't come from me. I wish it did. This comes from Paul Russell. <laughs> so Paul Russell is at Memphis. And like most of us, right, like Rooster's coaching you through the burnout and like, listen, I don't really need help doing the burnout, right? And and Paul was at that point, right? And, and Rooster would wave him up and and, and to, to where to pull up and Paul would just kind of disregard him, open the door, look out. Yep. That's where I want to start my burnout. Right. To the, and when you do that to any, to any water box man that really takes pride in their job, like it's like, Hey man, come on. I'm here for you. Right. <laughs> Most of them won't verbalize that or won't, won't let their actions speak what they're feeling inside. Rooster's not ashamed of that. Rooster's like, Hey, yo, right here. Right. It's take charge water box, man, in a friendly way, right? 
So you can just tell, again, I'm speaking for Paul, and this is like Dan Wheeler. Paul can tell the story way better than I could because Paul's really gifted storyteller, right? So, <laughs> but he's, Paul says, you know, I'm going through the rounds and I can tell that the rooster's not happy, right? That I'm, that I'm not abiding by his every word. He's not going to say anything to me, but you can tell it's not sitting well. By and large, Paul pulls through the water, one round, pair in front of him breaks, and there's some downtime. Right after he had, he had bypassed Rooster's instruction to stop, pulled up a little bit further out of the water, right? So they shut everything off. And Rooster looks at him, walks over to him, and with no, no context, no previous discussion, he just looks in the door and says, teamwork, MFR, teamwork. <laughs> Turns around and walks off. That was all, three words. That's all that said. That was all that needed to be said. That's Rooster. <laughs> that is rooster he uh, he is master his craft and he'll let you know and he does take offense to, <laughs> to you not respecting it so, uh, it's been a it's been a battle cry among my my racing crowd for a long time teamwork teamwork yeah uh, you know we hired him at holly springs uh to do southern footbrake challenge water box work and we had a racer one time that kept pulling up too far out of the water and rooster would grab his uh, fender and and basically you know stop him but obviously couldn't but it was his way of saying that's far enough and the guy finally come up to him and told him hey bud don't grab my fender again if you do we're gonna have a problem rooster said you keep pulling up too far out of that water box and i agree we're gonna have a problem uh, and i'm gonna grab your fender so quit coming too far out of the water box because I like you in a certain spot, and I got you. I got you taken care of. It, it got a little heated for a little bit, but it, it settled down and went okay. So. I love it. I mean, I love a man that takes pride in his job. No doubt. No doubt. Rooster's that kind of guy. Great choice. Oh, okay. So I left some out. I, they, I left two out because I feel like they're too obvious. <clears throat> kind of like with, with Cowboy, right? And you'd kind of mention that. Like, I think everybody yep. recognized. My two that were obvious... <clears throat> One's been retired for a few years, Redman, Division Three. I mean, the dude had his own stickers, right? Like he was, a, he had, I think he still has a cult following, right? Yes. Redman's awesome. Um, and back, <clears throat> I'm going way back here. This is, this is really for the old heads out there from, I think, <clears throat> maybe even my first stint in IHRA, maybe my second one. This has been a while back, but Stage and Stevie. IHRA like he was the the Broadway Bob atmosphere of, of IHRA like the full white suit on the starting line waving you through yeah like stage and TV was awesome um <clears throat> another one for the old heads I haven't been to West Palm in several years for the five day I don't know that little John's still there I don't know that he's not there was a man that worked the water box there simply known as little John who was very much taken under the wing of several of the, the in crowd. A lot, a lot of racers really looked out for Little John. He was a special guy. Maybe still is a special guy. Like that may still be there. I, I don't know. Uh, so I want to shout out him. And then <clears throat> a more personal one for me that will not resonate with anyone that didn't race at Cedar Creek Dragway in the, the mid-90s. That is the track where I kind of uh, cut my teeth. I grew up at Texas Raceway, but um, Texas Raceway had rules. So when you're 14 years old. You can't race at Texas Raceway. I could race at Cedar Creek. And uh, Biggin was the track owner's brother. I don't know his name. He went by Biggin. Which is awesome. Biggin worked the staging lanes in a pair of overalls 
I can't say that he didn't have any other article of clothing on, but he didn't have any other article of clothing on that was visible. It was just overalls. <laughs> and Biggin was not a clever nickname. Biggin was a big one. He was a big man. So, and Biggin was, my dad had a way of befriending all the right people. And I don't necessarily think he had ulterior motives, but he just always seemed to be in with the people that you needed to be in with. Well, when your son's 14 years old, you need to be in with the people running the racetrack, right? And my dad just had a way of getting in. So after a couple of trips, successful trips to, to Cedar Creek, um, a, a, a fellow racer approaches me in the staging lanes with Biggin. And if I've told this story on the podcast before, I apologize, but it's a good story and it, it's the Biggin story. And, uh, you know, Biggin had kind of cut up with me and my dad, but he was a very intimidating presence. Like I would not say that we were buddies at this point, right? <laughs> had a very, I had a large <laughs> amount of respect for Biggin, right? <laughs> so I'm sitting in my car at 14 years old and, and granted looked every bit of 11. Um, in the staging lanes and this racer who uh who had done who did really well there and who i had beaten uh like the, the two weeks that i raced right or the, the previous two weeks whatever they come they approach me in the staging lanes and biggin takes over and he says now now Lou, man here he don't think you're old enough to drive this car and i'm like oh right i mean this is not what i want to hear and i'm not I'm not, well, I'm not a good 14 year old liar, right? Like, I don't know how I'm, I'm very tense as this comes up. Right. And, uh, and he says, I thought we'd just put that to rest. Once you show this man your driver's license, best I can do with thinking on my feet is, you know, I don't have it on me. Is it back in the truck? You know, I, I, I think I left it at home and I'm like, man, this is not going to happen. God, I'm going to have to go all the way home. I ain't going to get to race. Right. And he kind of shrugs. He gives those overalls a tug. He says, well, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you just like I'm going to tell him. I don't know if you're old enough to drive that car or not, but you sure as hell doing a better job of it than he is. <laughs> <laughs> Walks off. And that was all that was ever said. <laughs> so, Biggin, you're my guy. <laughs> uh, shouts to Biggin. I love it. Great story and a great nickname. Anybody named Biggin you love. Yeah, everybody needs a big one in their life. So. <laughs> oh, Luke, great segment. I enjoyed that. That was top fun. fives are, are good stuff. And shout out to all those unsung heroes at the racetrack. So we've gotten to the point that we don't get together every week to do the podcast yet, and I feel like when we do, we're just making up for lost time. Phew. Yeah. So if you've gotten through like what two hours, two hours this, uh, hey, about two, yeah. Bless your heart. Obviously, you've got a lot of drive time or something on your hands. But we appreciate it. Thanks for sticking <laughs> yes. it out with us. Yes, we do. But uh, I believe this officially is is bringing us to a close here. Um, definitely uh, appreciate the the guys at the Pro One Texas Two Step, Cody Pilot, CP Promotions. Y'all check that event out. It's going to be a great one for uh, the folks in the southwestern part of the country. So thank you for that. Uh, Cody and good luck on a great event and uh, appreciate everybody that uh, that helps us out on the show producer Mark we miss you but um, you might even get a shout out I don't know who you got scheduled for shouts Luke or if you got scheduled for shouts but it's, uh, it's that time in the show yes yes so okay so shout who out you got close outs shouts to 
MJ, Michael Jordan, greatest of all time. Shouts to producer Mark, the greatest of all time. Shouts yeah. to Carl Malone and Uncle Drew. My God, how did you get so old, Carl Malone? Shouts to George <laughs> Carl. Shouts to the men's league. And what did you say? Fast break league, slow break league? Shouts to all of that. Yeah, um, we played it all. Shouts to, to the BIR staff. If any of the, the Brainerd International Raceway staff listens, I made one of you really happy. The rest probably not so much. Shouts to all of you. Shouts to, to Perry, to Rooster, to Money, to Alex, to everybody that we just get. Yeah, all yeah. the people that we don't have names for. Shouts to the F yeah, man. F yeah, man. Shouts to you. But above all else, uh, I'll close this with shouts to Biggin. Shouts yeah. to Biggin. Shout to Biggin. All right, guys. Uh, hope you enjoyed this. I know I did. This was a, it was a long show, but it was a lot of fun, good times. I hope uh, we had most of our listeners make it to this point. Um, be sure to reach out to to Luke and I. You can uh, message us right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. Tell us what we did right here. Tell us what we're doing wrong. What you'd like to hear more of, less of, or just any that we haven't mentioned. Uh, or you can uh, reach out to us uh, on Twitter. Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. Be sure to tag us and, and tell us what you're thinking about the show. And uh, we appreciate you tuning in. I have no idea when we're back together again. Um, but I will, I'm sure it will be soon. And I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening. Everyone stay safe, stay healthy. And Good luck if you're going to the races, and we'll talk to you about more sportsman drag racing really soon. The Texas Motorplex will be the place to be from June 11th through the 14th. Cody Pollage and CP Promotions will bring the Pro One Texas Two-Step 50 Grander, presented by J. Allen Sherman Racing Engines and RaceSponsorships.com to the Ennis, Texas facility. Box racers will run for Fitty. 50 grand on Saturday, surrounded by 10 granders on Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. No box racers will run for $7,500 to win on Saturday, surrounded by fives on the other days of the events. Complete weekend entries provide the best bargain at 650 off the top bulb, 400 off the bottom, respectively. There will be racer appreciation dinners. There will be a cool last chance lotto. First and second round losers can purchase a chance for 10 bucks to be drawn to be put back into round three each day. Check it out on the CP Promotions Facebook page or in one of our posts here on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. Reasons to use BTE tune-up services. Number one, quick turnaround time. You won't be out of commission for half the season while you're waiting on your parts. Number two, unparalleled customer service and responsive communication. Reason number three, all brands of parts are accepted. It's not like they just work on BTE parts. Number four, BTE offers freight shipping discounts. They are located in the shipping capital of the United States near Memphis, Tennessee. And number five, reason to use BTE tune-up services. Quality work from knowledgeable technicians helps your system achieve peak performance. Let's lock it in on the next one. Greedy for it, I roll it.
Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.